Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. I do have the most of the passage there printed on your insert. It's also around page 870 in your pew Bible. If you want to turn there, we will look at all the verses of chapter 6. Isaiah ministered for five decades. And so what we have before us is no doubt the highlights or the high points, the main points of his prophetic ministry and message. Uh, Isaiah overseeing the arranging of this book as we have it. I believe it's probably true that the first five chapters were meant to set up the reason for calling Isaiah as a prophet. Uh, The situation in Judah was desperate. It was difficult. You remember the last thing we looked at in chapter 5 was this parable that God gave about the owner of a vineyard and the vineyard. And it was, of course, God and Judah. And God gave every possible opportunity for Judah to give good fruit. But instead, they bore bad fruit. And that's the last scene we have in chapter 5 is the unfaithfulness of Judah and how bad the situation is, how desperate it had become. And as if matters could not get worse, their king died, the one who kept them feeling secure, the one who had been successfully reigning for five decades himself, who early on in his reign had the favor of God upon him and probably the reason the southern kingdom wasn't taken like the northern kingdom is because of this faithful leadership of the king at one time. Now we come to chapter 6, one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. It gives us a picture of God's call. It also gives us a picture of worship. If you were to go to one passage in Scripture that could declare or show for us how the people of God should approach God and what happens when we approach God and the blessing of the empowerment God gives us in this light, we would look to Isaiah 6. It certainly mimics the liturgy of the church over the many, many centuries. Chapter 6, I will read verses 1 through 8. Hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, 
And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Our God and Father, we bow in your presence and thank you for your word that holy men of old wrote as they were carried along by your Holy Spirit. We ask now, as we turn to this scripture, that this is your word, this is your infallible and errant word. And yet, without your spirit, without the illumination of your spirit, we cannot understand it. We come as servants, we come as students, we come as those who are hungry, we come as those who are beggars. Teach us, feed us, and enrich us for Jesus' sake. Amen. When somebody says to you, 9-11, every American knows exactly what that means. And this past week, we marked another anniversary for the day when America was attacked by terrorists. I remember the day vividly. I was off. My wife was teaching at Westminster at the time, music. And the phone rang, and it was Kevin Lutz, one of our deacons. And he said to me, are you watching the TV? And I wasn't because I had a toddler and I had a baby in my, a toddler running around and a baby in my arms. So I wasn't watching the TV. I turned on the TV and immediately I saw the image. It didn't matter what channel you turned to. And there it was. One of the towers smoking is what I saw. While I was talking to Kevin on the phone, another plane hit the other tower. Buildings brought down. The Pentagon, a symbol of our military power, was attacked. Planes seemed to be going down in the field. You remember those reports? No one knew where so many planes were, and they were scrambling F-16s at the time when I was watching the news. It was a surreal, it was a helpless feeling, a scared feeling for most people who lived through that day, if you remember it. Immediately following the attack, there was a, a palpable feeling of uncertainty about our country's future. How strong were our enemies that they could do this to us. Never before were Americans feeling so vulnerable on their own soil, at least in the mainland. Vulnerability, insecurity, fear, dread, anxiety, all of these were the emotions that Americans felt on 9-11. This is the same kind of feeling that resonated with those who were the inhabitants of Judah when King Uzziah was sick and died. It was against the backdrop of incredible discomfort and insecurity that God called Isaiah to begin his prophetic ministry. God called Isaiah, a fellow sinner along with the rest of Judah, to be a message bearer for the king of the universe. Judah, once strong and powerful, now weakened by its compromise, by the infiltration of not just foreign ideas, but their gods and their religions and their beliefs and their practices and their values. Severely weakened, but yet seeming strong because of their king and their past glory. Yet they saw just north of their border what had happened to the northern tribes, the ten tribes that were lost, assimilated by that time. And they were insecure. They were unstable. And then their king dies. God calls Isaiah in this time frame. And God's call of service to Isaiah is a model of God's triumphant grace in the life of a sinner called to bring a message of salvation. Now, it's not an exact paradigm for everybody's call, but it presents a model or a pattern that we can all relate with as a church and as people called by Christ. 
Isaiah is sharing his calling from God, and in some sense, it provides us a model. We might not have a vision just like Isaiah's, but we have his vision before us, and we can understand how profound it is when God calls sinners to bear the message of the gospel that saved them. As Isaiah was unable to bear God's message, so also would the people of God by the same process. Let's look at God's call to Isaiah, which is a triumph of his great grace. First, we see in verses 1 through 3, God reigning with sovereign majesty. And he reigns with sovereign majesty no matter what it feels like or looks like in the world. No matter how insecure we feel at a given time, it does not change the truth of God's sovereign ruling majesty. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, that year was 740 B.C., a terribly difficult time period for Judah, and by association, Isaiah. The Assyrian emperor, Tiglath-Pileser III, was the military conqueror most feared in the world at that time, having run through the northern territory already. Uzziah was a powerful king. And for the most of his 52 years, he reigned with faithfulness to God. And God blessed Judah because of this. In Second Chronicles 26, we read this about Uzziah's reign. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. In Second Chronicles 26, gives us this interpretation. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And for most of Uzziah's reign, it was like that. And the people felt secure, even if they themselves were not acting righteously, as the parable tells. Their king was faithful, and he was strong, and he was able to give them a sense of security. But towards the end of his reign, he started to waver in his devotion to God. It says later in Second Chronicles, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Later it records for us in Second Chronicles 26. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord and Jotham. His son was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. The last five or six years of Uzziah's life was spent in seclusion. He was still technically the king, but his son was acting out as the king. And they were struggling with insecurity and instability and worry and anxiety about what it would be like when he was gone. Much despair and hopelessness in Judah when the king died. I read in one commentary about Europe in 1914, having a sense like this before war, war, World War I. One commentator recalls the words of an observer at the beginning of that awful war. The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. Uzziah's death highlights a similar period for Judah, a hopelessness about the future. The king was now dead. Who is the king in this world? Verse 1, let's continue. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, 
high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. While the earthly king lay dying and then was dead, the eternal king was still on his throne. Of all the descriptions the angels could have given the king of the universe, notice what they cry. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Of all the ways to label the king, he is called holy. The holy is given a special prominence as it's, descri- it's ascribed to Israel's God almost exclusively in antiquity. Not just one holy, but three holies. He's the thrice holy God. The word holy in Hebrew has two meanings, to be separate and to burn. One might well imagine that God created these seraphs, these seraphim, the plural name for seraph, that he created them to cry holy, holy, holy for all eternity. That's what they do. Earthly kings rise and fall, but the king of eternity sits on his throne as he always has. He doesn't even have to get up to see what's happened with man. What about this king? The Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. They cry, holy, holy, holy. The Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. He's on the throne filling the place, so majestic that he deserves angelic beings called seraphs to serenade him endlessly about his holiness. A holy king. The king is also the Lord of hosts, meaning the sovereign monarch over all the created beings, especially the created beings who inhabit the heavenly places. The king's glory is so magnificent that it fills the earth. The whole of the earth bears his glorious presence and his oversight. Majestic. He's holy. He's transcendent. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's the king. The practical power of Isaiah's vision cannot be missed. It has a practical impact. It actually moves when he sees God this way. It moves him to something. And that's what's so relevant for us. That's what's so important for us to see when this vision of God is understood, at least to the degree we can understand. When earth seems to be tottering, the true king is still on his throne. When it appears most bleak on the earth, there is no loss of power or control by the king of glory. Though everything seems to be falling apart, though it seems all rational, reasonable thinking has left our land, though it seems the situation could not get any more chaotic or out of control, though it seems like there are wars everywhere and there are more wars coming, Though it seems that our leaders have lost their common senses, the Lord is sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. He's still in careful control. Very practically, when your job no longer has need of you, when your spouse abandons you, when your parents fail you, when your friends betray you, when you don't get that job that you think you need, when you don't get into that school that that you want to attend, when you get that dreaded phone call from the doctor's office about test results, the Lord is sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and he is still in absolute control. No matter what life looks like on this small part of the planet we live in, no matter what prevailing sense of uncertainty, fear, or anxiety there may be, the Lord is sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and he is still in total control. 
Isaiah saw the apostasy of the people walking away from God, disregarding God, not walking in the light of the Lord. He saw the inevitable advance of foreign oppression. It was coming. He knew of God's plan to bring judgment and justice. It's clear. We already read it in the first five chapters. We'll see it in this chapter. Then King Uzziah dies, and he sees the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, still in utter control. But then the king speaks, and there is only one response when confronted by God. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. You can imagine the trepidation when you feel an earthquake. Where would you run? Where would you hide? You're in a temple where everything is big and and massive around you. And if it falls, you're dead. There's no running from an earthquake. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. As God speaks, this shaking is unleashed. And the house is filled with smoke. You can't get away from smoke either. It fills your lungs. It fills your vision. It stops you in your tracks. And I said, Isaiah records his response, which would be the response of any one of us, woe is me. Remember the six woes in chapter 5? It was a, a, a statement of condemnation, condemnations for disobedience. And now, using the same term, Isaiah says, woe is me. I am condemned. Woe is me, for I am lost. There's no finding me here now. I am undone, as it says in some versions. I am ruined, as it says in others. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In God's presence, any human being would immediately be overwhelmed with God's holiness in their own lack of holiness. The cry of Isaiah here is one of dereliction. He's testifying to a terrible self-knowledge that has come upon him because he's in the presence of God. We're usually able to avoid the topic of our sinfulness or our unholiness because we're not confronted with God. We confront each other with each other. And if I do that, then I can stay less unholy. But if I'm in the presence of God, I have nowhere to hide. It will be shaking and there will be smoke and there will be the realization, the self the terrible self-knowledge that confronts me that I am unholy and cannot stand in his presence. That is what any human being would feel like. That's what they would say if they were truly in the presence of God. There is no other thing one could say. No excuses, just conviction and then confession. Uh, No comparing himself with worse sinners like, but God, at least I'm not as unholy as the rest of Judah. There's no room for that when you're in the presence of God. Just a true confession of his sin along with the whole nation. In the presence of the holy God, it is the height of folly to compare our unholy self with other unholy people. The holy presence of God so confronts us that we are paralyzed with the convicted realization about the chasm between our absence of holiness and the holiness of God. When I pray for loved ones who don't know Christ, I pray for them what God did in my life. It was a fear of God's holiness and his just wrath that drove me to Christ. I remember sitting in a church one day, 
and there were statues in this church. And there was this, this grotesque-looking statue of Jesus with blood, or it might have been a saint of some sort. I don't know what it was intended to be. But it overwhelmed me with fear that, that, that I was in the presence of a God who, who would bring his wrath upon me. I was scared of God. I was scared of what he could do because he was so holy and I knew I wasn't. So when I pray for people, I pray that God will give them a, a, a quick glimpse of the chasm between them and God, that he would use that to draw them to him. This is what happens with Isaiah. What separates us from God is not really our finitude, not that we're finite. That's not really what separates us, but it's our corruption. It's our sinfulness. That's what keeps us separate from God. God created, created us as finite. That's not what's wrong. It's our unholiness that a holy God cannot fellowship with. Isaiah sees a hopeless situation, and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. Wait a minute, the king's dead. No, the king. That's the proper response to being in God's presence. Unless we think this is just an Old Testament thing, remember the Apostle John. Unless we think this is just a God the Father thing and this doesn't relate to God the Son. The God the Father is a God of wrath and God the Son is a God of grace. No, this is the God of wrath and grace, the triune God. And we see it all in this passage. But remember when John is given a vision at the end of Scripture and he's given a picture. And John records, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, John writes, he did what any one of us would have done. I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Brothers and sisters, we are constantly, I think constantly, not just one-time basis, we are constantly in need of an encounter with the true and living King. When we come into the presence of God, there must be, at some initial level, fear and awe. Oswald, in his excellent commentary, says, how we need a vision of the blazing holiness of God, how we need to be crushed under the awareness of a being who is greater than the entire known universe, which is one meaning of the whole earth is full of his glory. How we need to come face to face with a white-hot moral perfection in the presence of which sin cannot even exist. You know, our worship liturgy comes from a model that has started, at least in Isaiah 6. Our worship liturgy, and even the building we're in, is meant to give you at least a bit of a sense of the transcendence of God. It's, it's to bring your gaze upward. And we come in and we 
sing a praise to God because that's what we should do when we're in his presence. But we don't have to pause long to realize we are in his presence, and what do we have to do? We're convicted. We're con- we confess our sins. And then when we confess our sins, we hear the word of God's grace given to us. And then we can receive his instruction. Then we're in fellowship with God. Then we can bask in the grace that is ours because we have seen the holy God and we know what it means. It convicts us and we confess. And then he calls us. God doesn't leave us in ruin. He doesn't leave us undone. He takes us from our place of humble lostness and cleanses us so that we might answer his call to service. Verses 6 to the end of the chapter show us how God supplies triumphant. It's triumphant over our sin. It's triumphant over the rebellion against him. God supplies triumphant grace to serve him. Look at verse 6 to verse 8 in particular. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Why do you suppose this vision has... Isaiah's lips touched and not his heart, you might say. Well, this is a a symbolic vision that he sees with important purpose for him as a prophet. But the lips evidence what is in the heart. The lips are corrupt and symbolic of evil speech, idolatrous speech, unfaithful speech, speech which devotes itself to someone or something other than the true king. Unlike the seraphs who cry, holy, 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 our lips do not speak those words unless God gives us grace to speak them. So Isaiah is the recipient of divine grace. Undeserved favor shown to one who actually deserves wrath. That's grace. This grace not only cleanses Isaiah, but it empowers him to respond to God's call to service. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? God has a message to be delivered. God has something that needs to be said. And it's always the same thing. It might have a different angle on it depending on the time, but it's still at the core the same thing that God is accomplishing by his word going forward. And he has a message that must go forward. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And the response that will come to someone who has actually met the true and living God is, I'll go. Send me. I'll go. I'm not lost. I'm not undone any longer. You have, you have redeemed me. You have atoned for I, I've got to tell other people about this. I am a man of unclean lips who dwell among a people of unclean lips. You've cleansed me. I want them to be cleansed too. I want to go tell them. Here I am. Send me. Calvin said, so ready a reply shows how great is the cheerfulness which springs from faith. For he who but lately lay like a dead man dreads no difficulty. Send me. I'll go. I want to go. Please send me. If you don't have the desire to share Christ with others, if you don't have the desire to share the atoning work of Christ, I don't mean that you could say it well. I don't mean that you feel confident about how you might argue it. I don't mean that. That's not it. But if you don't have the desire to at least do something to let someone else know how they can have their sins atoned for, have you really met the living God? Because when a person sees God, 
he or she is moved to serve him. The message that God gives Isaiah to relay is a hard one. Verse 9 through 13 gives the specifics of the message that Isaiah is commissioned to share. Look at what he tells Isaiah. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He is telling, them, telling Isaiah, go preach my message, and it's going to actually harden their hearts further. That's part of God's plan. And that is part of the result of the preaching of the gospel. It will harden the hearts of some. Some will come, but many will be hardened. It's actually part of God's plan to ultimately bring glory to himself, and he will bring salvation on wide scale. But in process, Isaiah is told to be faithful to bring the message that I have given you. We can fulfill God's call even when it's incredibly hard. Isaiah was called to bring a message that would harden. But notice that the success of the mission is determined by God. Success in this case was to give a message that would further reveal the hardened hearts of Judah. We're to do whatever God calls us to do, irrespective of the response that we receive from those who minister, that we minister to. We tell what God tells us to tell, no matter how it's received. Of course, Isaiah's response, I think, would have been the same as ours. How long, O oh Lord, verse 11, how long do I have to give that message? How long before their hearts are softened? How long do I have to bring that, that difficult, difficult proclamation? Well, the final picture is a desolate one for Judah immediately. Of course, he is setting the stage for the Messiah to come and the spread of the gospel, but the immediate picture is bleak. It's a picture of a destroyed field with burned-out stumps littering the landscape. Verse 11, how long, O Lord, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. This is a picture of exactly what happened eventually to Judah when Babylon comes in. Babylon, they succeeded Assyria, and they became the kingdom that God used to bring discipline to Israel. Verse 12, and the Lord removes people far, far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, so there's a remnant, there are people that will stay there, there are some faithful there still. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a, a terebinth or an oak. That's an evergreen tree versus a tree that loses its leaves quickly, like the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Does God intend total destruction here? No, there's a remnant and there's the holy seed as a stump that would later become the stump of Jesse that the Messiah comes from. But the only hope for healing is the call to faithfulness, to trust the king, the true king. Not success as the world might see it. That's not what God's favor would look like any longer. The process of becoming a servant of God begins with our seeing God for who he is. When we're confronted with and must admit our hopelessness and helpless condition, he provides healing and empowerment that we need. When we're convicted and we confess, he provides what we need, his grace. Oswald, who I referred to earlier, said it is foolish to think that we can somehow serve God until we have come to the end of ourselves. 
As long as we think there is some hope of a human solution to our problems, there is little chance of genuinely seeing God. Nor is there any hope for any of us becoming servants of the living God without there first being an adequate understanding of who he is. The last picture that God gives to Isaiah is one of a remnant. Verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. And starting in chapter 7, you all know chapter 7 because we read the passage at Christmas time all the time about the virgin conceiving and giving birth to the Messiah. There's an immediate application to that story that they would have related with, but it's a picture of Messiah's coming. So it leaves on a difficult note, but reminds us that the holy seed is its stump. From a stump will come a new branch that will bring salvation. The message of the gospel is always a hard message for unbelieving persons to receive. Think about this. If I'm sharing the gospel with you, imagine if you can, that you had not understood the gospel. The start of the gospel is to recognize our sinfulness. How do we know what is sinful? We know by comparing to God. And natural man does never wants to admit that. Never wants to admit that weakness. We're not that bad. What's the big lie in all of entertainment? Every movie that you see ultimately ends because someone thinks there's a shred of good remaining in man that then wins out. But that's not reality. That's just the movies. Reality is man is at his heart evil. And we know this because we know what is good based on God. And we see what man does in relation to God. We even see what man does in relation to man, and we know he's evil. So the message of the gospel is a hard one. It calls you to confess that. It convicts us. So being a faithful gospel-preaching church or a gospel-sharing believer will be hard in any context on this earth. There will be more or less confrontation when we bring the true gospel to the place we live. And the true gospel is we are wicked sinners and we can only be right with a holy God if we have a mediator who's holy and the mediator is Christ Jesus and you must believe on him, in him alone. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Brothers and sisters, when we meet God, we are never the same. We are convicted of our sin. We have no choice. And I mean that. When you truly meet God, you really have no choice but to confess our sin. If you don't trust Christ, you have not met God. God cleanses us through Christ so that we might answer his call. His call is to salvation, and his call is to tell others of this great salvation too. Let's bow as I lead us in prayer. Lord, this passage is about seeing and serving you, among other things. It is a picture of your majesty, of your sovereignty, of your holiness. It is a picture of your great grace. When you could have crushed Isaiah, who was right, right to say he was undone, instead you cleansed him. You atoned for his sins. And we know how you did this, ultimately, through your son. Lord, this is true for us. I pray that each of us would have an accurate picture of who you are and that we would be driven to confess and we would trust in you and that you would give us a special ministry of your spirit that we might answer your call. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together sing.